John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 726.2C0113, certificate number 24875. Gordon Lish. Uh, my position is that the mission of communication is to generate desire in those who come to the page to read the work to create in that person a sensation of being enclosed by a certain kind of atmosphere, which atmosphere promotes in the reader or in the listener a sort of gaze, the way a great painting or a great piece of music might promote in you a gaze, a kind of hummy, buzzy, drifting feeling into which you gleefully escape. Gordon Lish is the first living person to get an entry in the omnibus, although by the time anyone listens to this, of course, he and all the other subjects are equally long gone. I'm a little nervous about that, putting a living person in here. It seems like, you know, you can't put a living person on a postage stamp. Is that true? There's no, I mean, I suppose the rules differ around the world. I, I, I sure. feel like there are some living people on postage stamps in, in other countries. I think there are like Caribbean countries or uh, sub-Saharan African countries that'll put Katy Perry on a stamp or a coin and sell it to collectors. You know, I think it's actually changed in the U.S. I've seen the Harry Potter kids on oh. stamps. So I think everyone's chasing that money. But, it, you know, there's a long tradition that you can't put a living person on a stamp or on a, on a state quarter, for example. The state quarter for Ohio is, uh, you know, Neil Armstrong is from Ohio. Uh-huh. But he was alive at the time the quarter came out. So he's just got to be some unidentified guy in an Apollo-era astronaut suit, which is clearly... Neil Armstrong, but it could be any, really. It could be anybody from Ohio walking on the moon. Wasn't that also on the back of the silver dollar at the time? That uh, the, Yeah, there is a scene on the moon. Yeah. Can you see individual astronauts? I There's, think so. I think, it's, uh, I think it's Neil Armstrong jumping on the surface of the moon on that commemorative uh, 1976, 1776 silver dollar, Eisenhower dollar. Yeah, it says, well, it says first men on the moon, and you see somebody climbing down a ladder onto the moon. Sure, it could be anybody. But, oh, wait. <laughs> could be any any one of two two bit buddies. That's actually a different commemorative coin. The uh, No, the Eisenhower one got around this entirely. It's just a big eagle oh, sitting on the moon. Sure, the eagle has landed. Because they covered this up, but remember, Neil and Buzz did see a giant eagle holding <laughs> an olive branch when they got to the moon. When they got to the moon. And it posed them three riddles. A lot of people don't know this. Yeah. Um, and, th and they would then get his pot of eagle gold. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Which they brought back to Earth. His the, eagle moon gold. The, the whole Apollo mission <laughs> had as its goal to bring eagle moon gold back to Earth, which uh, then led to yeah, Watergate. Sure. sure. Well, in Area it 51. Was cursed. It, it, was, was, it was cursed. Yeah. And, uh, cursed eagle moon gold. And that's, that's what led to Nixon's downfall. Because, you know, we've profiled several. We've profiled many people on the omnibus, but none living, right? I mean, long dead uh, feminist paleontologists and queer icons who were also briefly vice president. Right. And, and, uh, and people who died of lead poisoning oh, right. because of their own science. That's our, nearly our nearest. That's probably our closest thing to a living entry would be Thomas Midgley. Although we kind of described his death in great gleeful yeah. detail. So Gordon Lish Gordon is Lish. alive and is in his mid eighties living in Manhattan, uh, as of this living. And he's a respected 
American man of letters. A is real he any relation to Gillian Lish? Who is Gillian Lish? Oh, I'm sorry. It's Lillian Gish. <laughs> a little bit of a transposition there. He's related to Atticus Lish. He, uh, <laughs> his son is also a famous novelist. He, uh, I guess he was naming kids Atticus in the early 70s before it was an before, insufferable Brooklyn thing. <laughs> before it was a thing that you found it, right in proliferation in any Brooklyn elementary school. It is going away now because, you know, now that Atticus. To Kill a Mockingbird, it seems like the book anybody could like. It's like naming your kid Hermione or something. Are people are still naming their kids Holden? That one seems like it would be gone for the same reason. And when yeah. Bruce Willis named a kid Scout, that, mm -hmm. kind of, that kind of poisoned the To Kill a Mockingbird well as well. But Gordon Lish was one of these, like, editors from the old school. Yeah, and uh, a great writer, wrote, you know, kind of experimentalist avant-garde novels. I think today we'd call it literary minimalism, but he's an author in his own right and well-known for creating a generation of writers through his famously arduous and excruciating creative writing uh, classes. It was kind of a cult-like experience with classes that were six hours long, often six hours of him talking. At where? Where, where did he teach the classes? Some of them were his, just his own seminars, but he also lectured at NYU, at Columbia, at Yale. He actually sued, I think, Harper's in the 90s for uh, printing one of his syllabi, which has rules like no interruptions, no questions. Oh, this is, this is like when, uh, when magazines print like the backstage writers of famous bands. Yes, and he sued on the basis that he was a writer and this was one of his literary creations and oh. he owns copyright. Oh. And oh. their contention was, no, this is a syllabus. This is a little different than a poem or a short story. But he would give these arduous all-night classes. He would uh, praise his best writers, sleep with the female ones. Sometimes people would faint because, you know, classes would just go into the wee hours. But he built a generation of great writers, uh, also as an editor. He was the fiction editor at Esquire in the 1970s and then at uh, Knopf. I don't know if we decided how we were going to say Knopf. that. Knopf? Knopf? I would say Knopf. You're, you're going to go with Knopf. I'm pretty sure it's Knopf because if your name is Knopf, you need a little something, you know? You, hmm. you need the little plosive. It's not a plosive, but you need a hard Knopf at the beginning because hmm. Knopf by itself seems a little weak to me. Knopf. But it's that it's the German KN. It doesn't feel weak to me. It feels like very severe. Knopf. But don't Germans say Knockwurst or uh, Knurdle? What else starts with Knudle? But it's a it's a sound we don't make. Oh. Like knock. It's like Knudle. Well, if we don't it's make like, it, I'm not going to make it. It's up in your nose. It's like Knoft. It's up in your nose. Knuh. Somewhere in your nostrils. Yeah, in your nostrils. But it's not Knopf. <laughs> uh, but this was at a time when there was, a, what, at least in American letters, the idea of writing as a macho undertaking, as a kind of like right. virile and like a, it was a tough guy job. Irascible white men. Yeah, who had some real like working class bone to pick with, with the world, but they were also, they were working class guys operating in the effete world of like person who sat at a typewriter all day and gazed out across a, a mossy fen. It's a pretty low bar. You have to be the most rugged man in your right. in your six, in your sixth salon. Avenue typing pool. <laughs> in your in your book club. <laughs> but it's like a post Hemingway idea of what yes. an American writer is. I think it goes back to Hemingway. And Lish was one of these working class kids. He grew up in Long Island. His dad worked in a millinery. That's another word I'm not sure if I'm saying right. Because uh -huh. if you're a millennial, you don't know what a millinery is. No, but it's a hat making right, a hat shop. Fa ladies hat factory. Shoppy. He had a kind of a indoor childhood as a little Jewish kid with psoriasis. Uh, he ended up going to Phillips Academy in Andover, but did not graduate. He was kicked out for fighting with a boy who called him a dirty Jew. Hmm. So I guess Andover in that era was exactly like you're picturing. I, I do picture it that way, and I, I'm surprised they let a, a Jewish boy in in the first place. Well, it, it definitely seemed to have backfired on them. So maybe it's a mistake they did not repeat for decades. So he's part of the Philip Roth school of like rough and tumble New Jersey Jewish writers. Yes, although I think he after the fact, had terrible things to say about Philip Roth. He had a very specific idea of so what a great writer was. So many people do have terrible things to say about Philip <laughs> Including Roth. Including his ex-wives. Uh, his life was changed when uh, doctors gave him some steroids, I think, to try to treat his psoriasis, which just made him 
buggy. He had a complete breakdown and wound up in a mental institution Whoa. for several months because of what the steroids did to him. But probably bulked up his pecs and his... Oh, yeah. yeah. That's when he became the real Hemingway-esque guy. <laughs> he started fighting bulls and catching marlins, but he wound up in the in a mental institution where he met uh, the poet who would kind of be his mentor and started him writing. He was not a writer at this point, but he wound up teaching high school uh, in San Mateo County, just south of San Francisco. Who was this poet who changed his life forever? It was the late Hayden Carruth, who... Hayden is another great name for a kid. But, uh, you know, in the case of this... 80-year-old man, he was ahead of the trend. Right. He was a Hayden before Anakin Skywalker was a Hayden. Well, and nowadays it would, uh, at least in this part of the country, you would wonder whether it was being, the child was being named after Hayden Lake, which would be a bad, uh, a bad sort of name font. Are we to the point of naming children ironically? Like, could you name your kid Atticus? Like, not because you love to kill a mockingbird, but because, isn't it crazy? I named him Atticus like everyone. Uh, there's so many terrible directions that the future could go. It may be that our future octopuses listening to the show are all named Atticus. It's like in, it's like the name Kim in, in Korea. I think the trend will probably continue and everyone in the future will have a name that rhymes with Aiden. Hmm. Hayden, Jaden, Caden, Brayden. That's my kids' class. That's all the dudes, though. <laughs> you could be a girl named... Aiden. Nowadays, I think Kayden. a lot of these are becoming not androgynous, but... Uh, what what word is for a name that applies uh, to gender both neutral. genders equally? Gender neutral. Yeah. And they, these are all Will Smith's kids too, right? Yes. He has a kid named all of, He's going through the whole alphabet. Yeah. He has 26 Aiden, kids Aiden, from Aiden, Aiden to Jade to Zayden. <laughs> Zayden is going to be in One Direction. Uh, Carruth won a National Book Award for a, bo a collection called Scrambled Eggs and Whiskey, which really sums up that kind oh, of hard-bitten American sure poet does. thing that they all had going with their stroking their beards. Yeah, and pull your fedora down over your eyes. Probably beating the first three of their four wives. Yeah. She walked into my office and put her heels up on my desk. It, I ate my scrambled eggs. It was, I, I think those days are probably gone. Yeah. Uh, Lish uh, wound up in the Bay Area. He got a job teaching high school while I think he wrote poems and stories at night. It was always a tough relationship between him and his high school. He was, uh, you know, he'd get in trouble for wearing a hat indoors or for letting the kids get out of duck and cover drills. Oh boy, I wish the, the those rules were still in effect. Oh, he's in the Bay Area circa when? This is in the 60s. He's, uh, what, like, he, he says the Pledge of Allegiance too fast and gets out of trouble. It, it gets in trouble. It's a, it's a, you can imagine the kind of milieu. But is this late 60s or early 60s or 50s or when is this? Because this, this was a pretty heady time in, in San Francisco depending on when he's there. It's pre-Summer of Love. You know, this is early to mid-60s when Lish comes west. Right, because I, I have a kind of, just a an awareness of Lish because he was sort of, a, you know, mobbed up or briefly mobbed up with the, with the Beats. He appears in Neil Cassidy's book, and I'm giving myself away here as a kind of, I don't like the beats. Let me just, I'm just going to go ahead and just say it. I'll take all your angry letters, but I am, I did read them and I am aware of them. And he, he you didn't appears, have a period as a road tripping young man of falling for that. I thought we all did. The problem is I, sh I knew I should, right? I mean, I was a road tripper and a hitchhiker and the idea of on the road was so appealing to me that I think when I read it the first time, I expected it to be one thing and discovered it to be another. And the thing that I discovered it to be, I, I didn't actually like. I loved the, the Tom Wolf explanation of the Merry Pranksters or his version of it, mm -hmm. but the writing from within, the acid, trippy, drunk writing from within, I didn't really connect with as strongly. I mean, I, you know, G Ginsburg being a kind of a different animal. But so Lish was kind of like tangential to these people. He was never himself actually a merry prankster, but he was... He ran a literary magazine for them called Genesis West. Well, not for them, but he ran a literary magazine called Genesis West. Right. Which was kind of a nexus for a lot of these writers. Yeah, and he, I think he was part of... I mean, they would like crash at his pad. They would crash at his pad, man. I feel like if Kerouac's not crashing on your pad in the early 60s, you're a yeah. huge loser. Well, what kind of writer could you be? I mean, that guy couldn't pay the rent. Yeah. 
but so anyway, I mean, he's, um, he was there and he was, uh, he was adjacent, let's call it. But, he was on the scene yeah. and it actually lost him his teaching job or he denied him tenure when, oh. when people found out about this kind of avant-garde magazine, he was running for all these oh. low lives and hipsters. Hmm. Uh, and in 1967, he, uh, he and a kind of mutual friend, a guy who's putting together a literary magazine, he's supposed to meet his friend, I think Kurt Johnson. And then his friend calls and says, I can't make it. I'm with this other guy and he's drunk and the car won't start. Can you come to us? So Lish hops on his bike to go meet this friend who is thinking of starting up a literary magazine. And that's when he meets Raymond Carver for the first time, the man who would kind of come to define his career for a lot of people, even though he worked 50 years as a, Lish worked as a 50 years as a poet and a writer and a teacher in his own right. Don DeLillo has said of Lish, who was sort of a mentor to him, that he is famous for all the wrong reasons. Because this is a guy who gave America Don DeLillo and <laughs> Joy Williams and Cynthia Ozick and Richard Ford. And today he's remembered kind of as the guy who rewrote Raymond Carver. Lish found out he was actually working across the street from Raymond Carver at the time. Uh, Lish was working on some kind of textbook about ling linguistics or grammar. And was he aware uh, of Carver as a writer at this point? No, because Carver was not much of a writer at this point. Carver was born in Klatskanai, Oregon, uh -huh. which I had previously said wrong, but it's Klatskanai by the Columbia River. Would you have said Klatskanai correctly? I wouldn't have, no. Uh, he was uh, just same kind of blue-collar childhood that you can imagine uh, from that part of the country. His dad was a uh, Worked in a sawmill and was a fisherman. Um, that, that's the area kind of up by the, uh, Kelso Longview and on the yeah, on it's a right bend. across the the bend from Kelso and Longview. Right, so a big timber milling and shipping, and it was like lumber country. Yep. Carver uh, actually started working in the sawmills there uh, right when he graduated from high school. He married his 16-year-old girlfriend mm -hmm. and wound up knocking around the country for a long time working these kind of jobs, sawmills and clerks and custodians. Um, he, when he, he was briefly at Chico State in California and took a creative writing class from John Gardner, uh -huh. American novelist who, um, I guess I mostly think of that, vote, the, that time in the 70s when everybody loved that Grendel book. You know, yeah. he rewrote Beowulf from the monster's point of view. <laughs> back before every novel had been rewritten from some other character's point of view. Anna yeah. Karenina from the train's point of view. Yeah. Now that's a thing, but I think uh, Gardner kind of invented it. And that kind Rosencrantz of- Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Exactly, exactly. Did Gardner do it before Stoppard? That's a good question. I feel like that Stoppard play is maybe late 60s. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's the origin tome. That's the er moment that changes our culture, so we have to have Wicked now. Uh, the- and that's when he started writing. You know, that's what really inspired him. And he started working on his own poems and stories. He was working as a hospital janitor at the time in Sacramento. And so he would clean for an hour and then spend the rest of the night working on his new poem. I mean, this is certainly his mythology, right? That, that, uh, that Carver, I remember first being introduced to him in the 80s. And the story was, here was this undiscovered, un, nobody even knew he was writing. He was just some janitor in a mental hospital who came out as this fully fledged short story writer. And it, I, I remember even, we held him in high esteem because he was the patron saint of the losers. Sure. He wrote about working class men and women and struggling with their jobs, struggling with their marriages, struggling with the bottle. But that he himself was this, I mean, this was during the peak Bukowski years mm -hmm. when the American macho writer mythology had fallen all the way down to, you have to actually be a wreck of a human being uh, to be creating great, beautiful things. The American macho archetype was really slurring its words <laughs> really, at that point. Fight, <laughs> killing many fewer bulls. Yeah, the, the... And killing a lot more bottles. The cirrhosis became a much larger <laughs> right. part of the... But, but, but as a young writer, I remember addressing my own failure or my own failings as an imagination by looking at somebody like Carver and saying, oh, it's possible to just labor in obscurity and then burst on the scene, right? That's an American story too. And it seems like uh, it's literature is really a field where that can happen, where these fully fledged geniuses can just come out of nowhere with an amazing 600 page novel or collection of short stories, you know, that 
that just changes everything. And you don't see that really with, uh, you know, painters or movie makers, you know, but you can just work on a book after work for years and it'll be the best book of the year, it turns out. Yeah, although I guess there are, within painters, the idea is always that you die having lived your entire life in obscurity. That's the the dream. And then they find, (laughs) and then they find your paintings, you know, and you're... uh, That's your your outsider artist who's got an attic full of weird Civil War murals full of, uh, you know, with giant chickens instead of the Confederacy or something. Right, right. Giant moon eagles instead of... Yeah, your your collection of strange, uncomfortable paintings of clowns and children <laughs> that become like the the must-have painting next to your Basquiat in your, in your like East Egg Mansion. Starts appearing on album covers. Uh, but yeah, uh, I actually had a college roommate who had a kind of similar Raymond Carver in Sacramento type experience. This was in... Provo, Utah, so there was no whiskey. Uh-huh. There were scrambled eggs and uh, Ovaltine. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> but he would go every night and work the night shift at the the Days Inn or the Residence Inn or whatever it was, and there was nothing shaken at the motel at night. Right. So he would write these lengthy fantasy novels that we would laugh at him for. Huh. And now he's, uh, my old roommate is Brandon Sanderson, this million-selling writer who finished Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series and, you know, is the number one novel in America every time one comes out. And wow. This was just a guy who had a hundred, had to write a million words and got out the bad ones while he was working at the residence inn. But was this actually true of Carver? I mean, the, another part of the, the artist myth in America is the, the outsider who works in total obscurity. But was Carver really like a janitor who had no literary affectations or was he in, was he the whole time struggling to be part of lit culture? He very quickly became celebrated because I think just because the work was so strong. Uh, he published Will You Please Be Quiet, Please, one of his most celebrated stories. Will You Please Be Quiet, Please. When he was, he had just, he'd left the hospital, just taken his first white collar job for an IBM subsidiary writing science textbooks in Palo Alto. And that was published in December, then kind of a very small, newish literary magazine. And it was named one of the best American short stories of the year in that annual anthology. And so he was very quickly a rising star, but it was all authentic. You know, all the, the marital spats he's writing about and the alcoholism and, you know, that was, that was stuff he had lived and observed. Right. He, he's not just uh, peeping through the window. He's, this is autobiographical. Right. I mean, I remember John Updike saying once something about how authors should not be celebrities. They should be able to, because you need a kind of anonymity to sit and observe other people's lives and, you know, pick out the little details from your neighbor's lives or the guy in the coffee shop or whatever. But in Carver's case, it was, it was him. He was not necessarily picking from the lives around him. Well, and so many of his short stories take place where he's either in a bedroom or in a, like an empty school that it, it does feel like he was managing uh, to keep that anonymity. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout his stories are um don't have a lot of incident they are, uh, you know, they're not kind of your classical short stories with a beginning, middle, and an ending. They're very economical. Right. His authorial voice, his prose style is very laconic and kind of reticent, you know, mm-hmm. dispassionate. Events are presented as they happen with little sense of cause and effect, little kind of internal monologue to explain them. And, you know, again, very simple subjects. Where I'm calling from is about 
two guys swapping stories in rehab. One guy tells the other how alcoholism has kind of ruined his life and it makes the first guy think he should call his girlfriend. And that's it. That's the story. Cathedral is about a married couple that invites her old friend over. He's a blind man. They talk a bit. They smoke a joint. They turn on a TV documentary about a cathedral. And then the man helps the blind man draw the cathedral on a piece of paper so he can imagine what it looks like. And again, that's it. That's the story. Right. You know, not, not much of an epiphany. Do you, in, in situations like that, as a reader, those stories are very powerful because, of course, your own imagination is filling in the blanks and you imagine that the writer is, the writer's intention is for you to fill in the blanks as you do, right? You give the writer the credit of your own imagination because you're thinking, oh, of course he meant me to think these colorful thoughts. And I mean, I guess those books are popular with people who bring their own imagination to books. If you were a strictly literal person and read those stories, you'd be like, why the hell am I reading this? Yeah, he drew a cathedral. Big deal. But does the... No, I'm with you. I like stories and movies and poems or whatever it is that make you do a little work. But does uh, the does the world of letters uh give Carver that credit or is it possible that he was just he was just writing like pretty uh matter-of-factly without a ton of metaphoric intent? Well, here, here's an example. Here's, you know, here's just the beginning of of one of his great stories, So Much Water, So Close to Home, just to get a flavor of that kind of staccato prose style that gives nothing away. My husband eats with a good appetite but I don't think he's really hungry. He chews, arms on the table, and stares at something across the room. He looks at me and looks away. He wipes his mouth on the napkin. He shrugs and goes on eating. What are you staring at me for, he says. What is it, he says, and lays down his fork. Was I staring, I say, and shake my head. The telephone rings. That's a Carver story. Right, and if you were someone who was not filling in the before and after... You would, you'd find that story pretty pointless. If that doesn't make you think, what's going on under the surface? I got to read on, you know, but um, I think a lot of people do feel that way. I think Billy Wilder was the one who said that, you know, if you tell the audience, don't tell the audience two, tell the audience one plus one and let them figure out and they'll love you forever for it. Right. And, and I, I, I believe that. Absolutely. I, I believe it too, but it's interesting in the case of this style of writing, which is so telegraphic that it. It almost feels like the writer doesn't care whether you do the arithmetic. Carver became famous for these stories and this particular style. Uh, in our time, Futurelings, he is still, although he's been dead for decades, he's still a, a really potent pop culture signifier. Uh, Robert Altman made a very long movie called Shortcuts, interweaving different Carver short stories. The, I love the fact that you are reading aloud from a, an edition of the uh, Library of America. That's a wonderful edition. I love the Library of America, and I hope these are still in the rubble for you listeners. I mean, the, the books always tell you that it's acid-free paper. It won't turn yellow or brittle. The sewn bindings allow the book to open easily and lay flat, blah, blah. I guess this will all be tested. Yeah, that's depending right. Depending on you know, where you find the Library of America. And and you have a nice plastic dust cover on it. Like it's a, uh, I, I, I feel like they're great additions and I think they will survive the apocalypse. I have a few. Well, this, this particular collected Carver, which the library of America put out in 2009 is actually a kind of an interesting, a controversial edition of his work, which we should get to. Um, There's a lot of controversy about Carver and, sure. and, his relationship with the title of this episode. Gordon Lish. Uh, when he met Lish, when it turned out they were writing textbooks across the street from each other, they quickly became friends and drinking partners. That's what it meant to be Raymond Carver's sure. friend sure. in 1967. It used to be what it meant to be my friend. And in 1969, Lish got hired as the fiction editor of Esquire magazine, straight from this textbook job, pretty much on the strength of a very brazen cover letter he just wrote to Esquire telling them that he wanted to remold fiction in his image and you should give me a shot. Is that really a thing that you could do even then? It seems unlikely even then, but that's what he did. He wrote a letter and was immediately hired and wrote some manifesto in its pages about how he was going to be Captain Fiction and he was going to just change the face of American letters by printing all this great new avant-garde fiction. Wow. It's like a, 
It feels a little bit like Tavi Gevinson, just someone who comes out of nowhere and just... Who is Tavi Gevinson? Tavi Gevinson is um, a young woman, a young American woman, who at the age of 12 started writing a blog about fashion. And it was like preternaturally sophisticated and smart, but also really smart about fashion, which there's so little of, you know, fashion. It, especially is, in sixth grade classrooms. Well, and, and, and just in general, that, that culture tends to be really, um, you do hear people saying dumb stuff about fashion all the time. You really do. And you know what's in this season? Style. <laughs> Great. Good to hear. But within, you know, I mean, there is a level at which style and fashion are an art form. And you can comment on it critically, but also in, you can engage in it. It's interesting and it's um, it's ground where you can take a very little amount of information and expand upon it in your imagination until, you know, until it has real meaning. Anyway, she, she was this young woman that was writing this, just this blog out, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it became a, uh, I guess she was from Chicago. It became like a, she was a figure of fascination initially because people doubted she was writing this stuff. It was too, uh, it was too sophisticated. And there have been frauds of this kind before. But uh, she was the real deal. Yeah. And her parents were just like, yeah, we don't know where she gets it. You know, that's not like they were in fashion. <laughs> uh, they were just like, yeah, sure. I mean, she's got her blog. And she became a real uh, celebrity within that world. And as she grew up, there was all this kind of expectation, like, when is the bubble going to burst? When is she going to turn into either a normal teen or when, when, when is she going to be unmasked? But she continued to develop as a writer. And now, although she's only 21, even now, she, and I've met her and spent an afternoon with her. And she's just one of those people that is like truly a gifted, truly talented, like American and, you know, has and just had it fully formed from 12 years old. She just had it. And she only, she seems to only be getting better. And she's not, she has resisted, I guess, the tremendous pressure on her that adults have tried to put on her, like, because adults want her to be these various things, you know, their whole group of people want her to be a feminist icon. A whole group of people want her to be, you know, the critical eye of fashion, a whole bunch of people want, want her to be all these things. And she's just resisted it. She has that internal power to just maintain her own course. Uh, I'm a great admirer of hers and it, I don't know. It's it, as we talk, I'm realizing it's not actually applicable, but there still is that opportunity, <laughs> I guess, for you to just stick your foot in the door in American cultural life sure. and say, Especially now in the age of blogging and social media where a lot of the barriers to entry yeah, are, are lower than ever. Just like, hello, and, and you can be judged on the, on the, truly on the strength of what you're making. But, but this is different from writing a letter to Esquire saying, I'm your new fiction editor. <laughs> yeah, it's almost some Seinfeld plot uh, where he just shows up at the office one day and starts printing really weird fiction. Uh, but Alish got the job, and he, when he was at Esquire, he loved the slush pile, you know, the unsolicited work that would come in, because he thought that's where the weird voices were. Sure. And of course, as Carver's buddy, now Carver does not need a blog, he's got his drinking friend installed at Esquire, and a place to publish his work, and it does. Uh, to great acclaim, uh, Lish edits his first three collections, which, you know, just are groundbreaking achievements in the American short story. And in 1998, after Carver's death, the New York Times prints this kind of groundbreaking expose, which tells a lot of people who didn't know for the first time or makes the case that Lish essentially rewrote Carver. I remember this. It was a bomb going off. It was huge because what's the one thing everybody, you know, he was universally loved and for what? For that inimitable style. Right. And when you find out the inimitable style, I, I said it with the right number of syllables there, you did. inimitable, uh, it turns out that it, it actually is, I don't know if it's imitable or not, but it's not coming from the guy you thought was imitating. So the, the implication of this expose was that Carver's actual writing was florid and run on sentences. I'm like, I love it. Do it. Do it. Do And, and it was really, uh, let me tell you about Tavi Gerstenstenstenman <laughs> for a second. But it was really, uh, it was really, uh, 
gish that that cut twenty of the twenty five words out of every sentence. The uh, in the case of his nineteen eighty collection, what we talk about when we talk about love, which is actually the play that is being performed in the recent movie Birdman. That's another right, another appearance of Carver in the popular culture. Uh, it turns out that the the, sto- the stories were cut literally in half. Um, there are three stories that are 70% shorter in Lishan's version than in Carver's manuscript. Whoa. 70% shorter. Whoa. Uh, 10 of them are given new titles and 14 of the 17 have new endings. He changed all but three of the endings. Whoa. And that surprised a lot of people who thought of Carver as this unstoppable creative force. Changed the endings in that he cut the old ending off and had the book end earlier or like literally changed how it ended instead. Like, did he write a new, yeah. Like the woman didn't die or or like, yeah. Did he, uh, okay. In the course of editing, did he only subtract or did he add? It was mostly subtractive. He, I'm sure he felt like, you know, a sculptor chipping away at, at marble, you know, or, you know, chipping away at whatever the dross to reveal the gold beneath. I don't know what metaphor you want. In the case of so much water, so close to home, the story I excerpted before the published version ends with a kind of a romantic, an ambiguous, but not unhappy romantic interlude between the woman and her husband. But the Library of America version at Carver's widow, Tess Gallag- poet Tess Gallagher's insistence, has the earlier, ver- the earlier versions of many of these stories as well, which later in his life he would reprint as well. Sometimes when the stories were reprinted, he would allow his originals to stand alongside other Lish-edited so, versions. So in this edition that you have, this Library of America edition, the stories are... are- Presented side by side? Not side, but not like left to right across a page. Right. But the la- the last quarter of the book is a collection of unedited by Lish Carver stories. Uh-huh. It's, you know, beginners, the, the original version of the stories that became what we talk about when we talk about love. And in that case, the, it goes on for a couple, for a page after the, the sexual interlude. And it's a lot kind of gloomier. It doesn't, things don't seem like they're going to go well for the marriage. Unlike huh. in Lish's version. Here's here's just a sample so you get kind of a flavor. Here is the which order should we do it in? Well do the Do you want the director's cut first? Yeah, do the do the Lish one first and then the Carver one. Oh, you want the, the I want the, the edited okay. version first. Here's the edited version. Here's what readers knew for uh, over a decade. Two decades. He raises his hands. He pushes his chair away from the table. He takes out his cigarettes and goes out to the back with a can of beer. I see him sit in the lawn chair and pick up the newspaper again. His name is in there on the front page, along with the names of his friends. I close my eyes and hold on to the sink. Then I rake my arm across the drainboard and send the dishes to the floor. That's what Lish published. Here's what Carver originally wrote. I give up, he says, and raises his hands. He pushes his chair away from the table, takes his cigarettes, and goes out to the patio with a can of beer. He walks back and forth for a minute and then sits in a lawn chair and picks up the paper once more. His name is there on the front page, along with the names of his friends, the other men who made the, quote, grisly find. I close my eyes and hold on to the drainboard. I must not dwell on this any longer. I must get over it, put it out of sight, out of mind, etc., and go on. I open my eyes. Despite everything, knowing all that may be in store, I rake my arm across the drainboard and send the dishes and glasses smattering and scattering across the floor. What do you think? Huh. So we actually get to see inside her head. You know, it's a sudden, unexpected thing when she knocks the dishes on the floor. Here, we're seeing her inner turmoil, and then she does it, which is a very different effect. Yeah, the I mean, the it's the effect of if you had a a cut of "Do the Right Thing," where Mookie before he throws the garbage can through the window of. Sal's Pizza. I really hate racism, Mookie thought. <laughs> yeah. Why are there not more African-American celebrities on the wall of this pizzeria? I'm tired of this Italian restaurant being in my neighborhood. I've had about enough, and I'm going to do the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, all, there's always, in, earlier in the movie, there's other inner monologue where he's like, one thing I'm sure I'll never do is throw a garbage can through that window, because I love my job. I mean, honestly, having you read the two side by side, I I... Because I've never read the original versions. I have, uh, when I was a Carver fan, I mean, it's not to say that I ever stopped being, but Carver head, when I went through my Carver phase, Carvin based life form, it was, it was pre this revelation. Mm -hmm. And so I only read the definitive versions, the, the, sure uh, there there was only one version who would think that 
you were reading some interpolation and the, uh, there was some other version that was twice as long. But hearing them side by side, I prefer the, the more um, rat-a-tat-tat just because it, leave, it does leave that to the imagination. Here's, here's the next little paragraph. He does, here's Lish. He doesn't, well, Carver edited Carver by Lish. Lish. He doesn't move. I know he's heard. He lifts his head as if still listening, but he doesn't move otherwise. He doesn't turn around. It's like six sentences, each about five words. Here's, the, here's Carver. He doesn't move. I know he has heard. He raises his head as if listening, but he doesn't move otherwise, doesn't turn around to look. I hate him for that, for not moving. He waits a minute, then draws on his cigarette and leans back in his chair. I pity him for listening, detached, and then settling back and drawing on his cigarette. The wind takes the smoke out of his mouth in a thin stream. Why do I notice that? He can never know how much I pity him for that, for sitting still and listening and letting the smoke stream out of his mouth. The effect is a lot like, it reminds me a lot like of seeing a movie and then seeing the deleted scenes or the, or the sort of the self-indulgent three-hour director's cut. Although in that case, I preferred Carver's original. Oh, um, you liked seeing the, you liked seeing her observing him. A little bit in, I mean, this is really difficult as a reader and as a writer. Yeah. Because I can see Carver feeling absolutely butchered. Can you imagine you're uh, this leading light in literature and you send this to your editor and what comes back is 70% shorter? I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't imagine submitting to that. And I feel like you almost would have to be an alcoholic to have so little pride and authority uh, over your work that you could be, I mean, this feels like literary bullying. Carver was grateful. There's plenty of letters. You're a wonder, a genius. There's no doubt of that. Better than any two of Max Perkins. Max Perkins, the famous editor who edited Thomas Wolfe and Fitzgerald. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not unmindful of the fact that my, of the fact of my immense debt to you, a debt I can simply never repay. This whole new life I have. So many of the friends I now have. This job up here. He was teaching creative writing at Syracuse at the time. Everything I owe to you. He, another letter, he said, if I have any standing or reputation or credibility in the world, I owe it to you. So he liked the style too. He liked Licious Carver quite a bit. Well, and, and, and you can see why. I mean, it's, it is in the writing. Yeah, it's not different. Yeah, the suggestion just, is there. It's him extrapolated. It's him intensified. Yeah. It almost feels like cheating. Like, I feel like I could take a kind of a classical short story, Guy de Maupassant or something, and take out 70% of it and put it in these little ratatat sentences and really make something striking out of it. And something different. Something I mean, very different. My own criticism of my own writing is it's too floored, it's too descriptive, it's too... Right. Uh, it's too tortured. But even a writer saying that has a hard time doing it. It's very hard go to go Go in with through. your own pencil and be like, no, 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 you know, slash, 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 kill your babies, whereas... Yeah, because there, you know, there are so many beautiful turns of phrase you can't sure. imagine losing. Whereas a, a friend, somebody you trust, who produces something that's very good that you know you would never have the guts to do to your own work, that's got to be very tempting, especially once it starts selling. But that's astonishing to turn over that much authority to someone else. It, it, uh, and and I, don't, I don't know if now that role even exists in the same way. The idea of an editor being such a collaborator, uh, because now we put breadth ahead of depth in so many of the, of the arts. You sure. Know, so, subtract? What do you mean? Give me more. Give yeah, me those right. deleted scenes. Because... Because the internet allows your thing to be as long as you want. You sure. know, the uh, traditional record album, if you put more than about 33 minutes on a vinyl record, you started to notice a tremendous decay in fidelity because the grooves of the record had to uh, be smaller together. Uh. In, or in order to put more music on it. And at a certain point, the grooves had to be so shallow that the needle would skip because the records were just too long. And so... There was a reason that, that record albums were all about, you know, 25 to 30 minutes long because you got a nice deep groove and you, and it had made good sound. And so the limitation created the work. And then when CDs came out, all of a sudden you could have a 90 minute long album. Right. And was, we got uh, these long, long. They were engineered like the, I think the Japanese engineers insisted on 70 something minutes so you could get. Beethoven's Ninth, I think, is the story. Uh, uh, on one CD, yeah, there was a particular length, a particular work they wanted to get on one meet, you know, one particular piece of the medium. But so you get these albums uh, of that era that are wonderful, like The Cure's Disintegration or My Bloody Valentine or whatever, where you're like, this is an this is a tremendous album, but about 
35 to 40 minutes in, you start to feel fatigued. Well, that's what they say about every every double album has a good <coughs> has a good single album in it, you know, which is literally true. Like All Things Must Pass, the great George Harrison triple album has a, I think it has a whole, that whole third record is just kind of noodling and sitar and stuff. And yeah. Well, and and the the classic argument about the White Album, like imagine the White Album if it were just a single album. Right. Um, sorry if you like Honey Pie. Yes, well, I do like Honey Pie, but sorry if you like Revolution Number Nine. <laughs> but this is, I, I think, this is talking to people that are in the business of literature now. This classic relationship, like Hemingway had one with his editor too, where it was a lifelong relationship where it, it felt collaborative putting your work in his hands and it, but but it it required that there be enough money that it, that editors be paid to put this much work into one writer and sure, it not I, be a situation where you were responsible for a stable of 50 writers or more maxwell perkins cut 90,000 words out of look homeward angel it's the only writer editor relationship i know of that actually has a movie adaptation they made a <laughs> I saw this on a plane once. There's a movie about this with Colin Firth and Judd Law, which is just Colin Firth cutting words and Jude Law being like, no, no, it's brilliant. I can't believe. Okay, it's better now. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But yeah, like in my experience, I've worked with several editors at several different publishers and uh, editors don't edit much anymore. They're kind of traffic cops and internal cheerleaders for their authors. And I think it's exactly what you say. It's, it's margins. It's a, it's a very old industry finally having to cut corners and get rid of the, the lavish lunches and tours. And editors now have dozens of books. They can no longer take a manuscript home and just, you know, carve live, it. Live it, right? You right. would have to get inside that story so inside that, I mean, you have to have read it a dozen times to make that kind of and Gordon, oh. Gordon Lish has to do it to an eight-page story. You know, poor right, Max right, Perkins right. having to do it to a million-word novel or whatever. And so do you feel deprived as a writer not having an editor relationship? And I don't want to out this so that your editor listens and says like, hey. My, I mean, do you my editors have no time to listen to podcasts. Do you wish that there that there you had a more hands-on relationship? All my editors have been great. But at first, I really did. At first, I was like, why aren't you you know, where's the big slashing red pencil and all the fights, you know, right. like I expected my, my new book, which, uh, wow, fortuitously is, Hey, another opportunity. It's coming out. Oh, I think maybe the same week that this entry gets added to the omnibus. How fortunate. Although in the future they should just, you know, you're just gonna have to go through the rubble and see all my books. Yeah. The ones I haven't even thought of yet. You are, are available to you. You can see my creative decline. Yeah. They'll be etched on gold plates and buried somewhere in upstate New York. <laughs> Go to the mountain in upstate New York where I will uh, be there in luminous form showing you where to find my work. Yeah. Uh, this, my editor on this book actually took a firmer hand. Oh. Uh, and I'm, I'm into little, that. Sounds He always has a writing crop that he slaps against one palm while uh -huh. he edits my work, which uh -huh. is a little weird, but whatever he's into. It's good. No, but he would actually say things like, pull these three things out of this chapter and make a new chapter or like this ends weekly. Like this should have ended six pages ago. Like he will actually say kind oh. of Gordon Lish, you know, tell me what to do, daddy kinds of things. And I'm like, yes, sir. You know, <laughs> That's uh, exciting. well, I really like it because yeah. it makes me really, first it makes me mad. Then it makes me think, and then it makes it better whether I do it or not. Uh, and it could just be my work is getting worse. You know, maybe my first thought is, well, maybe they're editing more because the work is not as strong, but mm. you know, maybe the other books were just came out so perfectly like uh, Tova Gerstenstein 
her fashion blogging yeah. and didn't need an editor, but. Well, so, so here we are in this post revelation and it feels a little bit like, like, wait, wait, wait. I want to ask you something oh, first. Okay, go ahead. I think you have told me that there's something kind of equivalent in the music world, right? Where producers used to have a very firm hand and creative vision and George Martin would reshape your little ditties in the studio. And I feel like you said essentially the same thing that uh, much as editors edit less. Well, and producers increasingly as the technology enabled oh, the technology. people to make records at home. That's a, that's a new thing too. What it, what it resulted in was a decline in, in the job of producer in that if you were an engineer, if you had the, if you had read the manual and were capable of using pro tools, there wasn't anything keeping you from calling yourself a producer because you could produce a record. And I'm, I'm sure there's an analog in writing where editors are now getting manuscripts from people who have turned out unedited blog post after blog post for years, have an audience, have a voice. Hey, you yeah. know, the, the technology provides. And believe they don't, they, they didn't need an editor at all. Right. Um, but in, I have a blog is the same as I have pro tools. In music, you, there is a distinct relationship in, at the, at the top level, um, like Rick Rubin never touches a knob. He sits on the couch and there are engineers that are running all the equipment and setting up the microphones and getting sounds. And Rubin is commenting on those things, presumably a good or a good producer is taking a hand in that. But what they're really listening for are top level stuff. Like how is the performance what is the quality of the song itself and how are the sounds communicating it? And, um, and that's a super different role than being an engineer and like getting the drum sound. But these days, I would say a large percentage of the people in the music business that call themselves producers are doing both jobs. Hmm. And sometimes they're good at the production and sometimes they're not but there's nothing keeping them from diminishing that role. And it, what it means is that, that now when you're making a record, young musicians or, or independent record labels, if you try to say, we want to hire a producer, but we're also going to need to hire an engineer because the producer is just going to be doing this top level stuff. It seems like an extravagance. Well, why would you pay? You get this guy over here to do both. Right. With budgets thinner than ever before. Yeah. And so something definitely has been lost. Uh, Carver was initially accepting of the changes, but when his second collection, what we talk about when we talk about love came out, uh, he was already starting to chafe a little at the rewriting. You know, he, he wrote Lish that letter about how I, I owe my career to you, but then it was preamble to saying, quote, I'm afraid, mortally afraid. I feel it, that if the book were to be published as it is in its present edited form, I may never write another story. That's how closely, God forbid, some of these stories are to my sense of regaining my health and mental well-being. So he's... he's Felt a become, real psychic toll. He's become famous and acknowledges it for the, for the books he, that have been edited. But as he gets that fame into his head, and again, alcoholism now in check at this point, he's sober. Not yet. Um, so alcoholism rattling around in his head, all of a sudden he feels like, Hey, wait a minute. I'm a genius here. And my stories don't need to be edited, even though those are the reason I'm famous. Warg. Right. He's fight. He's both things are competing within him. Yeah. He knows this is what made his name, but at the same time, and I don't think it's all just, uh, you know, you're going to tell me what to do. <laughs> like, I think a lot of it is just, you know, I'm a writer and I want to see my work on the page. Right. Not well, somebody else's um, distillation of it. Boy, this happens in, in rock music in a big way. If you think about the Smashing Pumpkins records in the early days when you couldn't hear Billy Corgan's lyrics or tell what he was saying because right. it was like all mushy, uh, those records sound amazing. But as soon as he got into his head that he was a genius... And started. You must hear my poetry. Yeah, started mixing his vocals way forward, and this is absolutely true of REM too. The world does not yet know it is a vampire until yeah. I tell them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've I think we've mentioned this Michael Stipe phenomenon on the show before, where he his lyrics were largely gibberish, beautiful but mumbled cryptic he, things that would let you do the work. Yeah, they sounded like this, like basically the South come alive, and then. And it was kind of it kind of had a staccato Raymond Carver thing. Here's an image. Here's an image. Here's a movement. Right. 
here's a person. And then somewhere after Monster, he started pushing his vocals way up in the mix. And writing in the first person. And it's just like, you can chew your leg off. And it's like, no, no, that's not any good. If uh, I couldn't hear it, it might be amazing. <laughs> What I really liked about Michael Stipe's lyrics is I didn't understand them and improved them in my head. Yeah. And I, I mean, please, if you're a super big fan of late period REM, which I know there are plenty of people, don't, don't at me. If you're listening to Around the Sun as you listen to this podcast, yeah. well, I don't, I don't think you should. That's pretty actually. unlikely. <laughs> but no, no one has ever listened to all of Around the Sun. But so Carver starts well, well, pushing back. Carver starts pushing back. And it is an open question. I mean, you and I have each said here that we like different things about different versions. I mean, that Ratatat prose is so seductive, Yeah. but then you kind of get the director's cut feel of, oh, but now I see, I'm getting that scene, but I'm seeing what she was thinking. And I know why he huh. walked outside and you're like, well, I can't say no to that. It's because we live in this age of kind of surfeit. You know, you watch an episode of a TV show and you immediately want to get online and read a, a huge recap of it. And then somebody else's competing recap and then somebody's rebuttal and then the comments to the rebuttal. I mean, I can't have enough comment about the art I consume. Well, and how many versions of Blade Runner are there? <laughs> exactly. And, and the idea that, I mean, Apocalypse Now was ruined by the addition of the... Uh, you, don't want, you don't want the French plantation scene? Apocalypse Now Ridieu is like Apocalypse Now in the garbage can. And that's one of my you know, favorite movies with all its flaws. I don't need five Blade Runners. I probably would have been content with any one you gave me if I just thought it was the only one. Blade Runner is an interesting thing too, because it does have the staccato voiceover, yeah. which I kind of like. Right, which everybody denigrates, right. including Harrison Ford. and The, the you future know. is really going to turn on me now, now that we've said we like the voiceover. In but that Blade was Runner. the first one I heard, or first one I saw, saw it in the theaters and was like, yeah, I mean, Harrison Ford sounds so disinterested which it turns out he was, but that was perfectly fitting. It sounds like a noir detective. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's hard to say no to more, you know, and... Oh, God, that's such a It's almost a better disease. not to have not to have the more, it's you such know? Such a disease of the era. Well, and in, it's, it's true in podcasts, too. When was there ever a time when a popular me form of media would be as unedited, as conversational... <laughs> right. As a podcast. What, what minute are we in here, John? I guess your number won't match our edited number because we have a Gordon Lish. Yeah. Who uh, makes sense out of this. Who tries to, but, you know, compared to what, how tightly edited radio would have been mm -hmm. or television ever was, there wasn't ever a show that was more than 22 minutes long. Can you imagine if you released, uh, John has a popular show in this era called Roderick on the Line. I don't, I'm not sure if it'll make it to the future. Of course like this it will. Roderick on the Line will be the thing that makes civilization possible. Imagine if you put that every week and then you put a Gordon Lishai's version, which was 20 minutes of highlights. I, I, no, mean, I Nobody would listen to the Gordon Lish one. I can't imagine how different it would be, but it might, I mean, the highlights are what you sit and listen to the long extraneous conversation about. It's just a question of what you're, how you're consuming the media. And I think a lot of people listen to podcasts as a way of, I mean, they, they like them a little bit longer because their commute is 45 minutes long or they have the dishes to do. Uh, and, and they like the company, you yeah. know, it'd be like, it's, it's not like, um, you know, cutting short a podcast is more like cutting short a night with friends than it is with ending a short story early. But now let me ask in the, in the aftermath uh -huh. of this revelation, right. in the aftermath of Carver, uh, chafing and his widow insisting that his work be revealed. Well, we only know this. Yeah. We only know this retroactively. Uh, Carver really pushes back, but the work, you know, Lish talks him down the work. Obviously what we talk about when we talk about love is the, is the Lishized version. That's what goes out to great acclaim. But when his third collection cathedral is being written, Carver is now sober. He is happily married to his second wife, poet Tess Gallagher, from Port Angeles, by the way. Uh -huh. uh, and Carver is buried out there today if you want to visit his grave at the foothills of the Olympic Mountains. The base, I guess, of the Olympic National Park. How, uh, highly recommended. Oh, it's beautiful out there. Great little industrial town with the mountains just hop, skip, and the jump away. Uh, and Raymond Carver's grave. He is able to push back more. He's got Tess in his corner. He's sober. He fights now over every change. He insists that there be no, quote, what he calls surgical amputation and transplant. He's really thinking of it as body parts being lopped off now every time his sentences are shortened. And as a result, Cathedral is kind of a, a blend between the abbreviated Lish style and the longer Carver sentences. And still a success. Lish always 
regretted it. He thought that Carver was better under his thumb, of course. Today, he's interviewed often from his apartment on the Upper East Side, where he's a block from Central Park, but I guess never goes out because of both his reclusiveness and his psoriasis. He's an unapologetic and irascible old man. He told an interviewer about those Carver, early Carver stories, readers were seduced. And I'm sorry, but it was my intervention that seduced them. In doing this, this is what you were saying, I fashioned a golem that would be cheered to see me destroyed. He kind of sees himself as creating this monster, Raymond Carver, who immediately casts off the shackles and... Well, so at the time there was a, I remember, because I, I didn't, I disengaged right about this time uh, for other reasons, right? In the, in the story of Raymond Carver, mostly- Well, he was dead. He had, he had died in 1988, I believe. But this controversy was in the headlines in the, in the nineties. And I had also recently gotten sober. And so the writing of Raymond Carver- You were reading Les Bukowski than ever before. I was, yeah. That there was a, there was a, a period, you know, when you're drinking and smoking and eating eggs, you want to read short stories that glamorize drinking and smoking and eating eggs. And after that, I, I needed to, I needed to find something else to do besides sit around reading stories about like, I grabbed a can of beer and swept the plates off the table. What is a more puritanical John Roderick read? You're reading like kind of a Oh, I just started reading. <laughs> Emasculated John Cheever stories. No, I just or... started reading manuals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to channel all this more work. field stripping rifles. Um, but uh, Lish was demonized, was cast as the villain of the story for a while. Well, critical opinion differed. There were many people who read the Carver stories and were like, yeah, this is, and once you've had the... Once you've had the list straight into your veins, you don't want this watered down version. Right. Other people were like, how could you do this? He, you changed the whole character when you changed the ending. Like, how can the, you can even say this is a story by Raymond Carver when the characters are doing their own things now? Right. So there are, there are people in both camps. But as time has gone on, has there developed maybe a, 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 a greater consensus? Because what we don't have insight into is the relationship between editor and writer of all of our great. I mean, you know, yeah, you don't, you can't do head to head comparisons of F. Scott Fitzgerald pre Max Perkins. Right. And, and so it's hard to know whether, I mean, we, we have a really good sense in music because the role of the producer was enshrined by George Martin. We understood him to be a key member of the Beatles. And so, and we can hear the Beatles with Phil Spector producing if we care to try something different. And right. And we can hear them in their raw form and then listen to the album. Right. Um, where, and so from the Beatles on who were basically the, they developed our ideas about rock and roll so much Studio rock that we always looked to the producer of album tracks and hadn't heard their opinion, but book editors, I mean, it's a much more, insular world barely credited so is there a consensus now whether or at least uh, a majority consensus of whether or not the lish or the carver versions are the definitive ones the lish edited ones are still in print and probably the ones that sell better mm-hmm. um you know even in this library of america version where carver's estate in the form of Tescal are kind of insisted on including the later published Carver versions. But they're addenda rather yes, than... Yes, exactly. Uh, I see. They yeah. are, you know, that's at the end of the book. Now, you know, try the bonus features. Yeah. Um, I think for better or for worse, we are kind of stuck with Carver delivered to us essentially via a translator in the same way you can't read Gabriel Garcia Marquez in, in the, the original, original Spanish, Spanish if, you're a, if you're an English speaker. You just have to grapple with that. You're always going to see the author filtered. I mean, I guess, I guess I don't prefer the director's cut more often than I prefer the, the original version. Well, it is sad then that we live now in an uncurated world where editors do less editing and producers do less, uh, producing, except in the case of the omnibus where we are curating our world for you. That's right. The omnibus edited, edited by our friend Chandler, who is empowered only to take out the many bloopers and helicopter sounds. And we are the Gordon Lishes of, you know, interpreting all of human history and existence for right. you. We are the Lish here. We're both the Chandler and the Lish. But I said Chandler. Beep. We're both the Carver and the Lish. 
And that concludes Gordon Lish. Entry 726.2C0113. Certificate number 24875 in the Omnibus. Listeners, in the unlikely event that social media exists in your era, the great unfiltered, you know, that's actually true of social media too. No editor. That, but it used to be a hundred and what was it? I don't even remember anymore. Oh, 140, 140 characters, on, characters Twitter. on Twitter. And that was, a that's just not enough for people. They don't want the list Twitter. They want Carver Twitter. And now how many is it? 280? 280 Did they double? twice as bad. You know, when I first was on Twitter, I didn't understand the idea. And I thought that your tweets had to be 140 characters long. And I labored over them. And for the first year I was on What an on odd Twitter, concept for a social media site that would be. Well, I, I understood pretty soon after I got on there that it what you didn't have to. Because I'd heard about Twitter for a long time. 140 characters, 140 characters. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting literary device. Right. And so it's when like, I first like got a haiku, on. Yeah, 17 syllables, 17 syllables. I was like trying to get 140 characters. Well, so for the first year. Uh, that I was on Twitter, all my tweets were exactly 140 characters long. Uh, but I have since gone back and produced better, punchier versions of all those tweets, which will someday be the definitive version. Right, they're 60 characters long. But now it's <laughs> 240 characters, you can just ramble, or 280, yeah. you can just ramble, ramble, ramble. More, 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 better, better, better. No. Surf it, decadence, that's what's going to bring us all down. You know, you go on Facebook sometimes and and people are writing whole medium posts. The, the, you know, the equivalent, the 280 character tweets are the equivalent of some decadent Roman emperor eating hummingbird tongues stuffed into, pheasant stuffed into a beehive. Like, this is why we're all going to die. Well, anyway, our handles were John Roderick and Ken Jennings on Twitter, and you can find our show in, on, in all social media, at Omnibus Project, Facebook, Instagram, all the things. And uh, you can go all the way back in my timeline on Twitter and see these 140-character ones. They were actually published in a book called Electric Aphorisms, my first year on Twitter. Is which, that true? Yeah. Which, now, now you're plugging your book. Which Yeah, but you can't find it. Well, yeah. in the future, maybe. Oh, right, right. So anyway, if you can find a copy of Electric Aphorisms, if there's a, it's probably if there's worth... An, if there's an angelic John Roderick guarding a hill somewhere with his printed out tweets and like dot matrix printer paper with the holes on the side. Yeah. He'll, he'll, he'll give you a copy. Yeah. They're worth $20,000. <laughs> That's like a penny in the future. Oh, also uh, go to Facebook. We have a fan group called the Futurelings. You can find them there. I don't know why you'd be reacting to people who lived thousands of years before you, but if you like, feel free. Maybe that's all the Futurelings all became... AIs and they're still on their talk. We've, our unchecked email inbox is probably still out there. What was the address, John? Uh, it was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. We're very conscientious about it now, but of course, by your time, we're long dead. Uh, we're still AIs. It's, it's full of spam. Listeners, uh, speaking to you as we do from the distant past, we have no idea what's next. We don't know how long our civilization will survive. We hope and pray that the cataclysm we're constantly scaremongering about will never come. <laughs> but if it comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, will be our final word to you. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.